Well, welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. I'm Jimmy Page. Our guest today is Keisha Russell. She's a counsel for First Liberty Institute, concentrating on religious liberty and First Amendment rights. She attended Emory University School of Law and served on the Emory Journal of Law and Religion. She was a law clerk for the Center, Center's Restoring Religious Freedom Project, where she worked on religious liberty lit litigation. And in her final year of law school, she worked as a law clerk for the American Center for Law and Justice on a national and international matters affecting Israel. She was a 2017 Emory University graduating woman of excellence, and she is most passionate about protecting religious freedom for children in America's schools. Keisha, welcome to Unstoppable Freedom. Thank you for having me. Well, today we are going to tackle a topic that most people may not think much about, but it has incredible implications for our everyday freedoms and, and even our individual rights. And that topic is judicial nominees, specifically in this case, nominations to the Supreme Court. Why is First Liberty so passionate about and so involved in judicial nominations? Well, because our goal is religious freedom in the country, and our goal is to advance that freedom through uh, cases, uh, you know, through the law. Because ultimately, persecution for religion always comes through the government, um, the, the worst kinds, you know, the kind that's going to, you know, sweep through uh, an entire nation or a country and result in the deterioration of not just religious freedom, but every freedom. But one of the things we have you know, come to realize is that there's no point in fighting these cases of the judges who are on the court are not going to uphold the foundational uh, values of the Constitution. Like They're not going to uphold mm. those documents. Because if you look at some of these countries, like North Korea and China, etc., many of these countries do have documents that promise the population that they're going to have these kinds of freedom. Why, why don't they mm -hmm. have it? Well, because nobody is interpreting the law to actually mean that. So, and so that's why we feel like getting involved in and advocating for uh, judges that are going to uphold the law properly is, is just as important as the cases that we, we fight against. Mm. And, you know, I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about how appointments to, especially to the Supreme Court, which are lifetime appointments, uh, I was thinking how important that is because if their ideology supersedes their constitutional application uh, and interpretation of laws, that interpretation, that lens by which they are looking through is going to be there for a long, long time, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's going to be there forever and it could potentially impact, you know, rights from, from year, for years to come. Um, mm. And, and potentially indefinitely, right? I mean, the, it's it's a really important position, and you know we can't help but opine on it. We don't we don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Has the divisiveness of the political environment and what we would call partisanship made the Supreme Court and and really the entire judicial branch even more important? Yeah, because. What happens in religious persecution is like one of two things. You either have a tyrannical regime that comes into place into the government and has to restrict religious people and expression because they can't have this population that believes there is an authority higher than government. 
Um, that yeah. is that is a threat to tyranny. The other thing that happens is sort of a cultural tyranny. And you get a group of people who end up capturing the ideology of the country and they become the authority of everything that's right and good and moral and anyone else is the enemy. And so in those circumstances, in either of those circumstances, the religious people are going to be under attack. Um, it's just it's just the nature of it. And so that's that's sort of the importance of having a justice who's going to uphold the integrity of the Constitution, even when it's not popular, right? Even mm -hmm. when the actual justice or judge has opinions that contradict with that religious group, because the law says we will protect this right. We will protect their right to believe and to exercise their religion in a way, even if it's contrary to the current culture. Um, and so the justice has to uphold the law, even if it doesn't match their own ideological opinions. See, I love that. I think that's something that's lost today uh, because I, I think that we're we're appointing people because it's become so divisive and so partisan. I think that most of our administrations are, are trying to appoint someone who r will be ideologically bent on the court and will interject their own opinions and beliefs. And listen, no one has to check their ideology at the door, but what they do need to do, especially when this is the job, right? is they need to interpret federal law for its constitutionality, right? Does this violate the Constitution or the Bill of Rights as stated? There's a, a conversation about whether the Constitution is a living document or if we should um, interpret based upon the original text, the original meaning. Why is it so important that we follow that original intent of the Constitution? Well, it's, it's a lot. It's like what I said, but it, more specifically, the original meaning is an anchor. It's 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 a standard that doesn't change. And even when the culture changes, if you interpret the Constitution as a living document, then the meaning is going to change depending upon what the culture wants it to say at that particular moment. So if the culture says that this is the core belief that everyone's supposed to think and these religious people who don't like that shouldn't be protected, then the judge is going to interpret the Constitution to not protect that belief, even if the original meaning would say, no, every belief is, you know, every sincerely held religious belief is protected. It's amazing when I read the original writings, not only the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, all of our founding documents, the Bill of Rights, but even if you read uh, the, the rest of the, of the writings of our founding fathers, and there is, you know, there's this idea that there's a separation between church and state, which of course was never mentioned in the Constitution, was never mentioned in the Declaration, was never mentioned in any single document uh, of our founding documents. And at the same time, in those early days, for the first 150 years or more, maybe even 200 years, there was a an integration of faith into almost everything that was written, into our laws and our legal system. And today it's almost like we were we're in a full court press to strip out and separate anything of a religious nature. Are you seeing that? Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely that's what's going on at every single level. Um, because as you said, this, this erroneous interpretation of the phrase separation of church and state, which when it was written by Thomas Jefferson was not intended to mean that you must, you know, um, 
completely ostracized anything religion from public life and anything religious from public life. It was really written to say that the government should not intercept the affairs of the church, uh, which is very right. different uh, than how it's being interpreted now. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, at every level you see that. I spoke to some young people at, well, they're not that young. They're, they're in law school um, and they're at the <laughs> University of Virginia and they were amazing group of people and I told I talked to them about religious liberty in schools and one of the things I said to them was like look what you're seeing right now is a battle for the minds of the next generation right so if you convince this young group of people that religion doesn't belong in the public square doesn't belong in school you're not allowed to pray you're not allowed to talk about what you believe then these people are going to grow up to be leaders that believe that that's what the constitution demands even though it isn't and so it's really important that we get the message out and we educate people why this is a very dangerous way of thinking. How did how did the law students at UVA? So I'm a Virginia Tech grad, so I'm a Hokie right up the street from UVA. So I'm, I'm not a fan of UVA because of the rivalry. OK, so there is that. That's and great. we don't have a law school at Virginia Tech. We're too smart for that. But uh, so how did they respond to to what you shared with them? Did they understand that? Did they agree? Yeah, they, they, they were very receptive. Of course, they were, um, one was a Christian group, and another was the uh, Student Chapter Federalist Society, right? So you've mm. got some very friendly audiences. Some yeah, friendly, friendly audiences, audiences and certainly very sophisticated in their understanding of those founding documents. Uh, so, mm. you know, very receptive. That's good. That's good. What you were recently called as an expert witness to explain why it's essential for a Supreme Court justice to uphold the rule of law and interpret the Constitution according to its original meaning. Uh, where did you testify? What was that all about? I testified on the very last day of the Senate, the, the, the confirmation hearings. Mm. And that last day is when they call witnesses. So 10 witnesses total, five for the Republicans, five for the Democrats. I was one of the mm. five Republican witnesses. So I testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, which is a big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. What was that like? Did was that were you were you nervous or were you like excited about that? Uh, I mean, definitely there's some nerves there. Um, yeah. You know, it's a big deal, right? Now, no. one of the other things is very few people usually watch the witness the witness um, day of confirmation hearings. And for some reason, everybody was watching it that day. Um, I'll bet they were. I mean, this is know. a contentious nominee. This is a contentious process. Yeah, there's a, you know, a lot going on with this one, isn't there? Well, yeah, but just think about how contentious the Kavanaugh hearings were. I don't know anybody oh. who testified as a witness during those hearings, do you? So it's I can't just, even, I can't even imagine being part of that one with yeah. how awful that was but i'm just saying yeah with that vitriol and the conflict there i don't know anybody who testified during the nobody watches it right but everybody <laughs> right. watched it last thursday right so it um but it was it was an incredible experience for a lot of reasons i went there mm -hmm. to speak the truth really on behalf of god you know mm -hmm. i fully committed to what my firm is doing and their research and mm. you know their commitment to truth and their just thorough examination of every nominee. You know, my firm didn't 
agree with every Trump nominee. This isn't about a party. You know, this is about right. truth. And this is about advancing religious freedom. That is our core goal. And so everything yeah. I said, um, my intention was to advance truth. And, you know, there was a lot of sort of like social backlash for me testifying. But ultimately, you know, I'm only here to please God. You know, I have yeah. I have allegiance to him alone. This is not about politics. It's not about race. Okay. Mm. This is about truth. And that's it. Yeah. And don't you think that truth is really in the crosshairs right now? I mean, you know, we're seeing a culture that uh, will not allow dissenting opinions, will cancel or silence or even fire people for their belief system, for uh, things that they say, social media posts that they like. Don't you really feel like uh, truth is actually in the crosshairs right now? I think truth is always in the crosshairs because that's the nature of truth. That's right. It's always not, under attack, right? Right. It's not a respecter of persons. It's just, it just is yes. what it is. And so I think what you see happening is that there was a time when people respected it a little more, you know, respected truth a little more than they do now. And now it's all about your own truth, which is not a thing. Okay. Um, there's no such thing as subjective truth. Truth is objective right. and exists outside of you. Um, mm. And so that's the problem. You know, we've got all these different viewpoints and ideologies that don't match, not just like truths as it's sort of the principle, but facts, basic facts, mm. you know, and yeah. you're not allowed to assert those facts as um, if, if they conflict with someone else's opinion or if they hurt somebody's feelings. Yes. You know, I found that a lot. You know, we, we've elevated experience, someone's experience over truth and facts. And, and I, there, I also think that people are so hypersensitive today. Like we're not able to have honest debate and back and forth without someone being offended by something. And I think that is undermining our ability to have civil discourse today around, you know, things that we might disagree on. And we used to respect those things. I remember my mom and dad, you know, these are old school values, I suppose. But, you know, talking about respecting people, you may disagree with what they say. You may disagree with their belief system. You may disagree with their position on something. But we can always come from a place of respecting that person and showing that respect out of humility. Is that gone from our culture today or is there hope to restore that? It's virtually gone. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that was really encouraging after the hearings and after my testimony was the very encouraging, gracious feedback from the witnesses who testified on the opposing mm -hmm. side, means for the nominee, and even the Democratic senators who were very gracious and, you know, appreciated mm -hmm. the testimony, whatever. That doesn't mean they agreed with that, that, that I had to say, but they treated me with respect. They were um, open um, mm -hmm. and they, they were just you know, treating me like a human, you know, they don't have to agree with me in order to treat me properly. Um, and, yes. and, and I think we are training college students and now a whole generation of young people that if someone says something you don't like, that you try to prevent them from speaking. I don't yes. know where this irrational view of free speech came from or having like proper, you know, legitimate discourse, but 
it's completely counterproductive and it will ruin us if we yes. don't do something about it soon. Yes. And one of the big battlefronts that we're engaged in through Unstoppable Freedom Alliance is, is our educational system, which is really, it's kind of a misnomer anymore. It's actually an indoctrinational system. This has not very little to do with education anymore. In fact, if you look at the statistics about how we're performing in actual academics in comparison to the rest of the world, we're, we're an abysmal failure, generally speaking. So obviously education is not the priority in our school systems anymore. In fact, it's this indoctrination. It's, we're not teaching kids to think critically anymore. We're teaching them what to think and how to feel. And um, we have an agenda throughout the school system. I know the school system is a passion for, for yours, why is this so important and what's at stake with our educational system getting that right? Well, it is one of my biggest passions um, because it, I think part of it stems from being a teacher. I, I worked in colleges and universities as well. Um, mm. And just seeing how important it is for kids to have a strong foundation when they're young, because if they don't, when they get older, you know, a lot of things unravel, you know, for them. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really committed to it. Um, and I think that we really should all be committed to it. I mean, one of the things that I say to conservatives, and like I said, I, truth respects no one because conservatives have, yeah. you know, a lot of, um, I would say they are culpable for what's going on in the education yeah. system, partially because yeah. they remove themselves from the public education system and then you put your kids in private school and there's nothing wrong with private school right yep. but when you remove your children from private school you completely abandon what's going on in public schools and you you've given it over to this entire group of people who are contrary to you and there are far more students that are going to be in public school than private school and so yes. abandoning that system is one of the worst mistakes that we've made as conservatives because now we're having to fight against the system that is now completely controlled by people who don't share our views, our ideology, or our moral compass. Yeah. And so I think one of the things we have to do in education is restore that, that control, or at least that influence over what's being taught, over the curriculums, um, mm. and get back to that place. Like, I'm, not, I'm not complaining about anyone putting their kids in private school, but you can't abandon these public schools. Because this is why yeah. we're in the situation we're in right now, is because this whole That's generation right. of students have grown up without an understanding of the Constitution, without an understanding of economics, without an understanding of many things, and now yeah. these people are voting. <laughs> yes. Oh. And so, well, and you can we see it. Right. And there's a bunch of things that wake you up, right? I remember, so my family experience has been my father was a superintendent of schools in Rochester, New York, when I was growing up. We have a high value for public school education. When, when we, my wife and I started our family and started sending our kids to school, we chose because of the ideology, because of the lack of the support of our value system in our local public school, because of the lack of safety in those schools, we decided to start out by homeschooling. And by we, I mean my wife, she was heroic. She was an educator like you. Um, every now and then she had to give me a piece of the curriculum and said, hey, get this done today as I go and, and work. And I would, uh, and she'd come back and I'd tell her, oh, we had a field day. You know, we had a field day today. I was unsuccessful with the curriculum, unfortunately. Um, so we had homeschooling and then we put them in a, 
non-sectarian private school, which was a leadership school where they had a tremendous experience. And then when we moved to Colorado, we put our daughter, so we had three sons that had already graduated from high school and had gone through college. And we put our daughter in public school. And then during COVID, we had the remote learning and I had a bird's eye view of what was really happening inside of her classrooms. And I can tell you, that was the moment that I woke up. That was the moment when I said, this is unacceptable. The bullying, the ostracizing for opinions, the lack of an intellectually uh, honest argument about what was happening, the silencing of different opinions, uh, the indoctrination. It was stunning, to be honest, Keisha. I mean, I, I got a, a full course in just two classes with her. Thank God. And that's when we, yeah, I know. Thank God. And I think that's the thing, right? A lot of parents that share our values have their kids in public schools, but they're completely unaware of what's actually happening and what's actually being taught in their schools. And then once they see it, and that's what you see happening all across America, once these moms in particular, but also some dads, once they have become aware of what's going on, boy, are they engaged now in this fight. It's an all out brawl now for the hearts and minds of our kids, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, and definitely hats off to you and your wife for homeschooling. I don't know how people do that. Um, teaching your own children is, is very difficult because uh, it's it hard, hard to separate the two lines. You know, they, this is school time, mm -hmm. this is home time. And having those things merged yes. together is difficult for them. Um, very tough. So I definitely have a lot of respect for people that homeschool their children. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, one of, like I said, people are really just, they're just unaware. And I think, and, and, and I don't blame people for being that way because if I didn't know if I wasn't in this fight, I probably wouldn't know either, you know? And so yeah. that's why I feel very compelled to educate people and to inform them because everybody doesn't get to see the things I see. Yeah. Everybody doesn't get, they're not exposed to the things I'm exposed to. I mean, because people know that I work, I've worked in education. I do a lot of our religious liberty cases in education. They send me these mm -hmm. curriculums and they send me these things and they say, how can this be? You know, how, how, yeah. how are we allowing our children to be exposed? And people just don't know. But part of it is because there's aspects of the law that allow people to indoctrinate your children and not tell you that they're doing it. And these yeah. laws just, it passed and you never know that, that it's happening because you're not sort of engaged. And um, I think that's something yeah. that I think we really are going to have to wake up to, that you cannot rely on anyone to educate you. You got to go out there and get it. Yeah. You got to fight for your own children and their minds. Because I can tell you that the other side, they are fighting for your children's mind. And they're- Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's relentless. You know, I, I've always said, and I, you know, I'm careful to use this term, but uh, evil never sleeps. No. You know, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that people are necessarily evil, but I do believe that there are evil ideologies that are being uh, thrust upon, forced upon our kids at earlier and earlier ages, which are robbing them of their innocence and which are really destroying the way they think and their ideologies. So, and a lot of times conservatives will say, well, thank God we have the Supreme Court, you know, or because those people are gonna interpret these unconstitutional laws correctly. Hopefully. But the truth is, right? And unfortunately though, you have to win at the lowest level, you know, you have to win in your local communities because the damage that can be done. And I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day, we're 30 years behind. Um, 
the indoctrination, the changes to our school system and their curriculum are so advanced now that we have to undo 30 years of garbage in order to get back to you know our shared values. So what? let's flip it back to the judges again, and then I'm gonna ask you specifically about this Supreme Court candidate a couple of questions, but I know that First Liberty is active in, in ensuring, being part of this conversation, ensuring that we have good judges. Do you have criteria that you look for when you're evaluating candidates? And do you get that information out to the rest of us so that we can contact our senators as they consider these confirmation hearings? Yes. Um, so we look for a wide variety of things. Um, particularly, we look at uh, the totality of the candidates' opinions. We read them. We wow. read them. We don't take someone else's word for it. Mm -hmm. We read it. We go read their speeches. We go look at their law review articles if they wrote any. We look at their allegiance. Who are they aligned with? Who have they supported in the past? Who supports them? Mm -hmm. Who thinks that the groups that support a judge, that, that's going to tell you a lot about what that judge stands for as well. Why? Because those groups are not going to support a candidate that they believe will be unfavorable to their positions. They're going to support someone who will be favorable to them. And so that says a lot too. Okay? Because that means those groups are also reading the opinions and also listening to the speeches and also reading the law review articles. And they're saying, this judge is for us. Right? Obviously. Yes. And so yeah. we look at all of that. And then we come up with what we believe to be somewhat of a of a of a, a metric about their the rulings on free speech, mm -hmm. on religious liberty, on uh, you know all kinds of things that we think are important. Their their adherence to originalism and looking at the text of the statute. How can we tell that? Well, are they in in their opinions and in their rulings? Are they sticking to the text of the statute? Do they mm -hmm. in politically charged cases? And this is where you're going to see it happen. In a politi politically charged case, is the judge going to avoid looking at the original meaning of a, a statute or the Constitution or any sort of legal text because it will not give them the outcome that they want politically? And so they're going to reinterpret that or they're going to twist it in order to get the ideology, the ideological outcome that they're looking for. And those, those are really big indications. You know, the, the problem is that People have opinions about people and they don't know anything about them. Yeah. And and we we don't operate that way. We make sure to do the mm. work. We do the research. We read. We, we're, we're not going to just take anything or anyone at face value. Oh, that's fantastic. That's what I love about First Liberty Institute. You, it, you are true to finding the facts and to informing us who, who do have the ability to connect with our senators who are going to be voting on this. And although... You know, one of the things I've been struck with is how this, the process of confirmation has increasing, increasingly been along party line, straight up. Mm -hmm. Not always, but when you look historically, if you go back 15 to, you know, a little bit in history, there was overwhelming support for the Supreme Court nominations, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of party affiliation. What, what has changed that this is an absolutely polarizing issue? Well, we've certainly become more divided. I, I think what, what has started to mm -hmm. happen is that political parties 
have um, begun to infuse other aspects of people's identities. So what I mean by that is you're not just a Republican or a Democrat, you're a Christian or you're black or you're conservative or you're liberal or you believe in certain things for, for gay or transgender rights or for abortion mm. or not. And so all of these aspects of your identity are now infused in a political party, right? As opposed to it just being about some very surface level things like the way the economy is run and whether we like or don't like welfare programs or things like that. Now it's like, well, you can't be a Christian unless you vote Republican. Well, you can't be about civil rights unless you vote Democrat. And, and so these whole moral positions are now infused into these political parties. And that becomes very divisive because now when you take a stand for one side or the other, people make assumptions about your opinions about all those other subjects too when they may or may not be true and so mm -hmm. that's why i think things are the way they are uh right now yeah. because so many aspects of someone's identity is now infused in politics i think you're exactly right and i think what underscores that is when those are the things that you're that we're grouping people in or i should say we're dividing people by characteristics or ideology they're very personal right um, it's it's one thing to have an opportunity about whether we think we should have more higher or lower taxes like, OK, who cares? At the end of the day, I'm not going to, you know, right. But if but if at the end of the day we talk about race or we're talking about religion or we're talking about um, civil rights or insert gender, gender ideology, all of these things, it becomes very personal. And then you lose the the conversation. I think it's one of the things that I think bothered me most about this appointment that the appointment was based on race and gender primarily now it doesn't mean that was the only consideration but it felt it made me uncomfortable to think that in america we could say this is the litmus test for the nominee that i'm going to make it has nothing to do necessarily with their level of of qualifications it has nothing to do necessarily with their level of expertise or whether or not they're going to interpret the law against the original constitution. None of that really matters. We're, we're most concerned about characteristics. Um, it, for me, that doesn't feel right in America that that should be the litmus test. It should be more upon how do they interpret the law? I mean, that's the job. Is there, is that where we're at, where we now have a litmus test based on the divisiveness of these groups? that we're gonna put forth candidates and nominees based upon certain external criteria. Is that where we're at? Well, it depends on what, you know, which side you're on, right? Because you, if, if you're a Democrat and you're a liberal, you can make an issue of race. If you're a Republican, you cannot. And that's just yes. a fact, okay? So, yes. I mean, the President of the United States can violate federal employment law and say that he's only gonna choose a candidate and hire a candidate based on her race and her gender Everybody's okay with it. Nobody calls it out for what it is, which is racial discrimination. And it's fine because the candidate he's choosing is black and a woman. If, if Donald Trump had said, I'm only gonna nominate a white man, you know, that's a difference. Yeah. But it's the same situation. Now, here's how people justify it though. They say, well, black women have never been chosen for the Supreme Court. America has this history of 
discriminating against black people. And so we have been sort of etched out of many of these opportunities. And so in order to sort of balance the system, these are the kinds of things that have to be done. Well, I disagree with that. I think that makes the problem worse. And I think by saying you're only going to nominate a woman for her race and her color, not only, but you're going to close the selection process. I think that really kind of waters down the selection for the nominee, too. Like, she's worth yeah. more than that, isn't she? Isn't it better to say, I'm going to find the best yeah. person and then select her because you only yes. because you thought she was the absolute best person instead of putting this cloud over the entire nomination process? So that's my view on the, the, the that part of, yeah. you know, President Biden's trying to earn political coup points, whatever, for doing yeah. that. I think that's cheap. Um However, here we are. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, she's obviously qualified in, in many respects. You know, she went to Harvard Law. She's been a judge for 10 years. She's on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, she started at the D.C. Circuit court level, and then she um, made it the district court, and then she made it to the Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's a, mm -hmm. a common trajectory for a Supreme Court justice, you know. So, yeah on paper, totally qualified. And she should have been yeah. chosen because of the, those qualities, uh, mm -hmm. personally, you know? I don't expect President Biden to nominate anyone I'm going to be ideologically aligned with because he's a liberal and I'm not. However, yes. um, with that said, as we are all sort of chatting about her philosophy, I think that should be the core basis of the discussion. What is her judicial philosophy? Mm -hmm. How does she interpret the law? Is she going to, you know, hold on to the ideals of the Constitution and uphold yeah. the Constitution, which is the job of the Supreme Court? Okay. Yes. And and that that should become the that should become the primary focus. That's right. And you know, I would object just as vehemently if someone had said, "I'm going to nominate a white male." I mean, that's well, outrageous. What I would have is the point. Right. Yeah, everyone would have. Right. And and so we all would have done that. And or or a Hispanic female or insert any characteristic. And all of it is agreed, in my opinion, is egregious. And you're excluding people who are equally qualified. And I think what you said is the the decision should be based on the merits. And we're getting away from this meritocracy and we're getting back to this idea of equity, which is where you kind of, um, you know, anyway, that's a whole other topic. But I was thinking to myself, this is not the first black female nominee to the Supreme Court, is it? Well, you know, the, the nominee that was, she was on her way to the Supreme Court. Everyone thought she was, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. you know, we know that Joe Biden filibustered this person, um, despite his current posturing, all right? Yes. Um, but see, these are the things people don't know. You know, I, you know, I had a conversation with someone the other day about this, and I said, "Look, this isn't, you know, this is disingenuous, you know, yes. on, you know, on the part of the president because he's not just. It's not just about being black, you know. It's because he's looking for someone with a set of ideals, you know, yes. and a certain ideology that that will be advanced, and you know that that's proven by his past." actions and statements yeah. about black people don't that do not fit that criteria that's right 
That's right. In fact, you know, if you examine the whole record of, you know, no, no one's clean, right? No one's perfect in this area, of course. But, you know, when you look at this, this is about ideology. It's just convenient to package it in whatever characteristics you want to put around it. It's very, it's just, um, for those of us who are intellectually honest and we can look at those things and say, wow, that just doesn't, that's pretty hypocritical um, to say you're basing it on one thing when in reality, you're really basing it upon an ideology. But um, I, I'm super thankful for First Liberty creating this criteria because as, some, uh, as a person of faith, as someone who cares about values, biblical values and truth, religious freedom, free speech. When I see your reports, after you've read the record and you've digested it and given us your, your, the facts on it, it helps us to know what to do. Do we support this candidate or not? Do I contact my senator in favor of this nominee or not based upon their record? And I love that. Um, this, this past couple weeks have brought incredible scrutiny to this particular nominee. And most of it is dealing in a couple of different areas, in particular, the fact that she's, at least uh, on the face of it, given lenient sentences to pedophiles or to uh, criminals associated with child pornography. Um, I'm assuming that's a red flag for First Liberty, where you're looking at the sentencing guidelines and you're saying, why, are the, why is she not following the recommended sentencing guidelines. Is that part of your evaluation? Well, yeah. Um, you know, does it impact religious liberty uh, directly? Well, it depends on how you look at why she's doing it. So if you mm -hmm. think that her, if you think that Judge Jackson's resistance to those guidelines is based on her resistance to sort of looking at the text of something and using it and applying it, or then thinking in her own subjective view, this is a better course of action, despite what the guidelines say. You know, I, I think it's an area of concern because of the nature of the crime, mm -hmm. right? Um, yes, but I, you know, I have, to be fair, I've talked to people who are in criminal justice and they've said that sometimes judges don't use those guidelines, right? And mm -hmm. so, I think I personally think it's a big deal because of the nature of the crime. Right. Right. Um, right. But is it a problem that she doesn't use those guidelines just in general? That I couldn't mm. really say because I, I just don't know enough about how judges sentence criminals. You know, that makes sense. Not my area yeah. of expertise. So I prefer. Yeah. Not and to... yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that's OK. I was just gonna, I just prefer not to opine on that completely because I just don't know enough about it. Um, right. But, but and yeah, the details obviously. of the case, right? The details yeah. of the case would factor into mm -hmm. that, the circumstances. And I appreciate that. I think what made it particularly egregious to me is is the, the sexual criminal nature of, of the things and the fact that it's with uh, minors. And so yeah. we, you know, we have this, I think we have this built in from God, this justice, this, uh, this seeking justice for those who can't defend themselves, who are powerless or who are seen as victims. And I think that could be a whole array of different people, but it, particularly with kids. You know, one of the other things that was concerning to many of us watching this nomination process was that uh, Judge Jackson was unable, or maybe unwilling to, but unable to define what a woman was. Why does that matter? Well, first of all, uh, what happened only days before that was the NCAA championship, right? Mm. 
So in asking her that question, which the real question is, do we really believe that a Harvard-educated lawyer and judge cannot define that term? Well, mm. of course she can define that term, you know, if she wants to. She doesn't want to mm. define it. She's unwilling to define it. Why? Because she has allegiances that will not allow her to define it. And personally, I think that question really revealed what's going on um, mm. and what she believes and, you know, whether she's aligned with truth or not. Mm. Um, and to me, that, that you know, I, I think that's something that everyone should have paid really close attention to, you know, especially Christians. Um, but a lot of people just kind of brush it off like it didn't matter. It does matter, you know, because yeah. there is, in fact, a definition for that term. And mm. if she's unwilling to, you know, respect that or acknowledge that, um, mm. that's sort of a, a foundational thing that we a battle that we're in right now yes. um and i and i think that just i i mean I, I personally think it's very revealing it is revealing and we're in the middle of women's history month you know where we're actually celebrating the contributions of women in our culture in our society in america in all aspects sports included and you know that was one of the one of the topics right is we're in the middle of that, and yet we can't define what a woman is. It was just a, one of those moments where she kind of exposed her ideological belief system, or as you said, at, at least the connections, the entanglements that she has. Her allegiance. Yeah. Her yeah. allegiance. She is exposing to her allegiance. So as, as her confirmation relates specifically to free speech and freedom of religion, what have you learned by looking at her record? How might her confirmation affect, have a direct effect on free speech and freedom of religion? It depends on the cases that come in front of her, right? I think, I think the biggest, you know, concern for First Liberty is that religious liberty doesn't really have a huge problem in sort of more benign cases right zoning laws discriminatory zoning laws maybe or things that are just not that controversial once you put religion on the other side of the v from these really hot button issues abortion uh sexual orientation and gender identity um all these things that people are really really passionate about right then you really get a taste of what a judge believes because in some of these issues, a lot of people don't want to rule for the religious person because they don't like their beliefs. They don't like them. Mm -hmm. They don't think they should have those beliefs. They don't agree with them. And so they want the other party to win for whatever reason. But when you look at the Constitution and in some of these cases, that's what the Constitution calls for. And there's a reason it calls for it, because it is designed to protect people with minority views. That's just, yes. the, that's what it is. Um, yes. And so, you know, our, our issue is going to be what happens when religious liberty and free speech intersect with these other rights, which is the battle right now in religious liberty. I mean, yes, we have all these other cases going on, and not many of our cases actually encompass this particular conflict, but those are the cases that, you know, are coming. Right. Like those are the cases that are um, becoming more and more prominent because, you know, the court is reluctant, as it should be, 
to sort of make these broad rulings about these issues, right? And they and they should be reluctant about that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. I certainly hope that her philosophy is, is cloaked in originalism. I certainly hope that she will give, you know, um, everyone a fair shot, despite what she might think about their beliefs and despite whether they, you know, it, it, it con- conflicts with her own ideology. That's my hope. Um yeah. About what will happen. I hope so too. Is is there anything that the average citizen can do in this process to weigh in and influence it? Where where can their voice be heard and actually make a difference? In the judicial nominee process, like in this particular part yeah. of things, or just well Yep. You know, this this part of the process, I mean they haven't voted on her, so you can always contact whoever your senator is and tell them exactly what you think by all uh, by by you know all accounts point to her being confirmed because of the the numbers in the senate right now and because we do have at least one set a republican senator that has come out and said that she will vote for her that's susan collins all the democrats have said they will Manchin has said so he's the only holdout typically on these kinds of things so She's got all the Democratic votes and she's got one Republican vote and she doesn't need anything else. She doesn't even need all the yeah. Republican votes. So she's she's going to be confirmed if things stay the way they are right now. Um, mm. And that'll happen some, probably sometime next week is, is my guess on the timing. And so I think what the, the best path forward for people is to just pay attention to what these justices are doing, you know, and when people are nominated... You know, try and look at what's happening with them holistically. Try and read opposing opinions on these people so that you can get a more holistic idea of what they're about. And you're not just listening to your party who's giving you the information they know you want. Right. Like try to try to get a full picture of this thing. Um, And that's really for any issue that you should be reading, you know, different versions and different media about it on both Mm -hmm. sides. Um, but I think that that's the best path forward is just try to be informed. And you don't have to be informed about everything. Pick an issue that's really, really important to you. If education is important, then try and be informed about that. Criminal justice is important. Try to be informed about that. But at least, you know, make sure your opinions are based in fact and research and not purely on emotion. Uh, because that is yeah. destroying us right now. Yeah. That's a great word, and that that might be a great closing argument, if you will. Hey, super thankful for what you're doing, super thankful for First Liberty Institute and the fact that you're on the front lines fighting for religious freedom, freedom of speech, our Constitution, everything that really makes America great. Thank you for everything you're doing, Keisha, and uh, thanks for being our guest today. appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me.